as long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. That's right. Big project in Corpus Christi. Concerning massive oil exporting, and that didn't happen because the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. So what was the plan? What was the project? And why did things go south? We go to Tim Snyder from Matador Economics, an oil and gas expert, joining us on your 956 drive home. So what happened? Well, first of all, howdy, boys. Good to be with you again. Hello. Um, what, what's happening is this. I think you guys might remember about two, maybe two and a half, three years ago, the, Biden, the uh, uh, Trump administration um, announced that they were going to allow the United States, uh, through the Port of Corpus Christi, to build an offshore uh, loading facility for crude oil. Um, it's so that we can, so that they could load crude oil on what's called the VLCC which is a very, it's called a very large crude carrier, the largest of the, it's a super tanker, the largest of the super tankers. And it, uh, they were constantly dredging the, uh, the ship channel between Port Aransas and Corpus Christi, and they couldn't, they just couldn't get those ships in there to turn them around to do the things they needed to do. So it was safer to run a pipeline underneath on the, on the, on the bed of the, uh, of the Gulf. Uh, out to a certain point was about 30 miles off the shore, off the coast, and then um, have some booms that would do, be uh, used for uh, venting any um, uh, gases that might come as you move, you know, as you, as you move crude oil and gets agitated, it puts off what's called a uh, VOC, a volatile organic compound. And so um, that's just normal. It all happens. Um, but what this is, is this is just another attempt to make it next to impossible for uh, the uh, oil and gas industry and primarily the people that have uh, large amounts of crude oil that they can sell to be able to do this. They've just basically you know, slit the throats of the companies that were going to benefit from this. I think Phillips was one of them. And there was another company uh, that uh, that I read about that that was involved in this uh, deal. So the money that they that they spent uh, is sunk. They found a uh, federal judge that would uh, issue an injunction on the uh, offshore uh, facility, and that was the end of that. <laughs> Joining us on 710KURV is Tim Snyder from Manador Economics, an oil and gas expert. Davis Rankin, your question? Uh, this is not well. Two things. This is not a, a permanent. Is it a permanent, uh, a, a permanent ban or permanent stop to this offshore facility? Number one and number two, they were going to send the crude. If I heard you right, un, um, on the seabed, right? 
Right. And I don't know how deep yep. that gets. Um, and that's and that's normal. That happens quite a bit. Matter of fact, right. that's what the Saudis do, and that's what the Chinese do on offshore and onshore. Sometimes they have the Chinese even have a, a facility that they transload. They move from one vessel to another, and that's of course out in the Sea of uh, South China Seas. Uh, but this is this is not a permanent ban, but it has the uh, has the action of creating permanence because you know what you you have funding that you put together and if you mm. can't complete your project uh, oh. because of any number of items then you are basically killing the project and so that's the thing that we're trying to fight against right now problem is we don't have um, uh, you know we don't have the strength in the judiciary right now to support allowing this to happen and and they're they're trying to make it as if this is a large polluting uh, event and this is simply not that is why, fascinating why did it take yeah. I, I don't know how far along the project is i actually read an article about it believe it or not but i i don't know how <laughs> if you're going to stop it you stop it before they spend all the money not when they're you know about done where where is the thing well but yeah, the problem is is that they were in the process of doing all the development work, and there's quite a bit of development uh, work that has to go. You know, there's environmental permits, sure. there's all kinds of things. So what what happened was the federal judge killed the permits and said we're not going to give okay. you the permits, and the Biden administration uh, is you know is behind that. Um, the Trump administration is who said we're lowering the uh, requirements for these specific permits so this can happen because we need this for our economy. And so once again, it's the economy versus uh, the environment and the environment. Unfortunately, they, they pay, they're playing a very dis difficult game and that they're um, really, um, you know, going after this thing as if it's a major polluter on VOCs. And, and VOC is volatile organic compounds. Organic. Uh, yes, sir. That is uh, correct. Where do they like? What do they? What do they do? Everywhere. <laughs> they're, they're they're everywhere. And what they do, um, if you if you read the uh, uh, a piece from some of these environmental groups, what they talk about is VOCs attach themselves to um, uh, water particles, in other words, humidity, uh, and then they attach themselves and create uh, holes in the ozone layer. Um, once again, we're, we're going back after we're polluting the ozone layer. Um, and most of that science is, um, oh, I got to say it's 50, 50. Some, some groups say that it's a serious mm -hmm. issue and most groups say it's really not. But if you're on the environmental side, you're killing people is what they're saying. I always thought it was fascinating that all these other countries get to do this stuff, but we don't, you know, like, yeah, or, or. Uh, tell you what compared to everybody else not only are we that restrictive about these things but is it is it even worse than that like we're not being allowed to be uh we're not being allowed to develop this this big exporting project off of corpus christi but right how conservative is the biden epa versus the trump epa so if there was like a baseline if there was like a gray area that everybody could kind of agree on and say the Biden administration's EPA is even more conservative than that versus like a Trump administration that's even more, I guess, um, accommodating is, is the word I guess I would right. use. Like what, what's, what's like the baseline here? Are we more restrictive than other countries or is it just the Biden administration going full green on this? 
you're going to love this answer. We are the most restrictive country in the world with the uh, uh, <laughs> EPA that we have currently. Um, no and that's, way. you know, and on top of it, we are um, striking ourselves in a position where we are um, creating more economic harm. Um, but, you know, this administration does not concern itself with economic harm. Um, they have one goal, and that is to kill fossil fuels and to replace it with anything that will generate electricity, even though we're probably still 25 or 50 years away. Our guest is... Oh, Davis, do you have a question? Oh, for, I'm wondering... Uh, Tim Snyder, uh, Manager of Economics. Final question, Davis. Go ahead. Uh, how many jobs... Well, I, how much... How do we gauge how how big this project was going to be? And I suppose may still end up being. Uh, if I remember correctly, this was going to be something around 500, um, uh, I want to say 500 million barrels a year. So it was going to be a large, of course, the VLCC carries about 570, maybe 600,000 barrels uh, in a VLCC. Mm -hmm. So this was going to be able to handle um, at least two, maybe four of those at a time. So, um, it's it's quite dramatic, and and it's it it you know our production right now is at you know 12 million barrels a day anyway here in the United States, which is off of 1.1 uh, was it 1.1 million barrels from the record. So we've got a ways to go to get back to that level of production. The problem is is the cost of of producing that crude oil now is so expensive, and now the infrastructure to move it and do the things we have to do to be able to get it where it needs to go. Uh, has gotten way out of hand. I saw a headline, I think, at the Wall Street Journal that we are just one tropical storm away from $5 gas. How true is that? Very true. Um, lucky for us, we had an August for the first time, and I can't tell you how long, where we had no-name tropical mm -hmm. uh, storms. Uh, so, you know, it's good for my good friends down in the valley, and then we didn't have that, but we need some of the moisture. So, you know... <laughs> Just send me a tropical wave or two, and we'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> right? Nothing too crazy. If they could just do it, that you know, send us the water piecemeal, <laughs> that'd be great. You know what I mean? <laughs> you don't need to give Absolutely. us a full deluge. Thanks a lot, Tim, for spending Thank some time you. with us here today. That's Tim Snyder from Matador Economics joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. I saw some reports talking about the new COVID-19 vaccines that are out these are tuned for the omicron variant and we're getting to the point at least according to these reports where we might just need a seasonal shot like like the flu and the question kind of comes up well how good is the flu shot and is the is the the current 
are, are the COVID vaccines going to go around that that same pathway? And uh, yes, just for yes. A, just for an update and and, and a more ed, uh, not that you're not educated, Davis, but for somebody who, a more experienced answer, we head to the <laughs> Hidalgo County Health Authority, Doctor Ivan Melendez, to to talk about this very thing. First off, I guess let's start with a with a COVID update, Doctor. Uh, what how are we doing in Hidalgo County? Thank you for having me on, and I'll take that introduction as the nerd report, because (laughs) I think the information is out there. For people like Dr. Melendez, the big nerd who wakes up in the morning and reads all this stuff, it's my pleasure to tell you a couple of things. The why, the how, the where, the when. COVID is up in the most vaccinated group of people in the country. People that are 60 years or older since April they're in, despite being 95% vaccinated, this particular group of highly vaccinated people, incidents, mortality, and hospitalization across the country and across Hidalgo County has been increasing and, and, and not in any way, a way has it been decreasing. So the question is, why is the most highly vaccinated people still getting infected, mm-hmm. still going to the hospital, and still dying? And the answer yeah. is because mutations because what we have circulating in the community is not the old enemy that we had it's an improved and more efficient enemy that has learned how to evade the immunity that we have in our community and it's interesting that you start off with influenza it took influenza it takes influenza about three years to really learn how to restructure itself to be effective in infecting a different group of people. It took the Delta variant from the ancestral COVID variant about a year. It took Omicron, BA4, and BI5, which make up about 95% of the variants in our country and in our county, five months. Influenza, three years. Delta, one year. The uh, uh, Omicron variant, BA4, BA5, five months. So now you have this, this... enemy, this virus that has learned rapidly how to change that outer core, that outer protein, so that it can evade us. It's become more infectious and less lethal. Less lethal doesn't mean non-lethal. It means less lethal. For that reason, there's a circulating virus, our enemy in our community, that requires a stronger, a better, a more important vaccine. Remember at the beginning, when we all were getting vaccinated at the latter part of 2020, that we were getting 90%, 95% of people vaccinated were not getting infected. Now we're down to 50%. And why would the most highly vaccinated people do bad? Well, they're doing bad because the vaccine immunity lasts such a little amount of time. So that is the why. What are we doing? Well, Pfizer from age 12 and over, Moderna from age 18 and over, have come up with these uh, vaccines that instead of being 30 micrograms in the Pfizer and 50 micrograms in the Moderna of the original ancestral, now it's 15 and 15 of the ancestral and Omicron and 25 and 25 or half and half of the ancestral and the Omicron and the Moderna. So now you have a polyvalent, meaning polyvalent, more than one, like the influenza's trivalent and bivalent, well, now we have a bivalent COVID vaccine. And so now we have a vaccine that is able to attack two and actually three different types of strains because the BA4 and the BA5 are so similar. That is the reason why. When should you get it? 
Well, the experts on a national level say two months because in two months from you being vaccinated or being infected, your immunity starts going down. I personally and a lot of other physicians disagree. We believe it should be about four months. Why? If you get it too early, your body has a large amount of antibodies and so it destroys the vaccine. You don't get an immune response. So I tell my patients, I tell my people, wait four months, but to not confuse our audience, the official recommendation, two months after having COVID or two months after having the last booster. Another important issue, these are boosters. People who never got vaccinated, that 8% of the diehards that never got vaccinated in our community, that 8%, they're not getting this vaccine. They're getting the original vaccine. Where are we going with this? In the future, I don't think anyone can tell you right now, if, as you introduce this segment, if we're going to need an annual uh, COVID. It looks that way, but still not enough is known. What is known is that the immunity that we have is lasting three to six months, especially in older people, and that this vaccine promises to provide us better immunity. Let me just finish by saying this. There have not been any human studies on these hybrid vaccines. Interesting, right? No human studies. So how do we even know it's going to work better? Well, we know this. It's the same ingredients as the other vaccines. If you're making a chocolate cake, chocolate, sugar, flour, uh, uh, yeast, it's still the same ingredient. It's just a different concentration. So we know it's safe. No one's going to get in trouble because they took too much chocolate. So it's safe, but how do we know it's really going to improve? Remember now, if you get the regular booster, you're going to go from a 50% protection to an 86 protection with the booster we have now. With this particular uh, uh, variant, it appears that we're going to go from a 50% protection to a 90% protection. So is that 4% protection better from 86 to 90? Probably. My point is, since it hasn't been tested in humans, since we don't have those long-term studies, we're not really sure. But does it make common sense to adjust the vaccines to the latest variants of the community like we do with the flu? Absolutely. Joining us on 710 KURV is the Hidalgo County Health Authority, Dr. Ivan Melendez. And we're talking about the new Omicron vaccination. Speak, speaking of which, we're supposed to be getting some here in the Valley, right? Do you have any details on that? Yep, we got 500 Modernas and 500 Pfizers today with the health department let's remember that we have to pre-order people have to have uh, pre-order appointments and so um we have we received a thousand today those are available for the people that need boosters uh wherever you got your original vaccinations or your boosters whether it be a pharmacy or whether it be a dhr or, or cornerstone or your doctor's office everyone will be getting the new combination hybrid bivalent vaccinations i can't speak for the other vaccination folks because I, they get directly supplied by the state, not from us, which is a little bit unusual compared to the other vaccines. But from the health department perspective, we did receive a thousand. We're good to go starting tomorrow. Davis Rankin, your question? Uh, yeah, a couple of questions. Um, so I, well, I've been vaccinated twice, boosted twice. Do I go to my doctor and I, we got it at least pharmacy? Um, do, do I just go back and ask for it? Do I talk to my doctor? I realize you can't give medical advice over the, over the radio, but uh, should I go to the doctor, my doctor, and ask him what, what I should do? Um, I, I, I don't mind freelancing and being my own doctor, but I don't want to get in trouble. And I just realized I had co coronavirus. I tested positive. 
I guess it was mild. I slept for three days. My wife had it. I didn't think anything of it. So, um, yeah. what do I do? Well, so my anecdote for that, or my my response for that, I had a COVID last week. Uh, my first oh. time around, I felt really, really sick. I didn't think I was going to feel as sick as, as, and I've been boosted and vaccinated, but I felt sick, not hospital sick, but I felt worse yeah. than the second, not as bad as the first. So wow. everyone responds differently. There is no substitution with having a dialogue with your physician who knows you the best and knows the idiosyncrasies of your medical history. However, as you know, Rankin, 40% of the people in our community are underinsured or non-insured. For that 40% yeah. of the people in our community that do not have access to, access to a physician, then I would go by the general guidelines, and they are as follows. If, it's, if you're in a high-risk group, that means over 60, obesity or diabetic, and it's been greater than two months since you've had the disease or you have had uh, the last vaccination, my Dr. Melendez recommendation, wait two to four months, but the CDC and FDA's recommendation is at two months, call whoever you got it before and ask them. I am ready for a booster. I'm interested in the new bivalent. When do you have them available? And if that's not a, uh, an option for you, please log into the health department's website, Hidalgo County uh, Health Department. It's clearly there, it'll show you how you can register at our seven clinics so that you can show up on a timely basis. We do about 30 in each clinic a day. There's seven clinics, there's about 270 vaccinations that you can be getting on an appointment basis so that it's nice and organized. The other question is more philosophical or global. A lot of people don't have health care coverage at all. And even if they did, they wouldn't go because they're hardheads. You know how people are. Is it realistic to think that at some point we could go door to door in a neighborhood, doctors, nurses, whatever, and just ask them questions or give them shots or whatever? That's really not practical, is it? So, no, we're actually kind of doing something similar to that now as we speak. We have oh. home vaccination programs for those people that, for whatever reason, can't get out of the house at a high risk, and we actually vaccinate at home. I think our biggest uh, enemy is knowledge, education, because if everyone has the right information, we know they're going to make the right decision. And here's the information. Number one, vaccinations will not be free forever. Right now, there's a strong move, and it's highly anticipated that within the next several months, you will have to pay for vaccinations. It will no longer be free. This is according to the press releases that are going out, but the government's plan is to, at some point, commercialize the distribution of vaccines. So get it now. Point number two, we are still having 10% of our beds in Hidalgo County with people with COVID, and we're still having an average of five to seven people die every week. Most of these deaths, these five to seven uh, uh, people that are dying a week in Hidalgo County, it's heart-wrenching. Most of them and most of the 4,000 cases of people who have already died could have been prevented. Not all, but most. So it's a tragedy if a vaccination is free ready, available, and you still have to die from a disease. Educating people, you know they're going to make the right choice. Is this going to be a, a seasonal vaccination, or do you think, what, every, what, four to six months, or what do you think this is going to evolve into? How, how frequently? So my guess is as good as yours, but my guess is going to be filtered through the information that I'm seeing in my practices at work and through the literature that I read. I think the cat's been out of the hat 
from us getting rid of COVID the way we could have during the first six months of the vaccination process. I think the, the politics behind it did not allow us to eradicate it like what, like smallpox has, like rabies, excuse me, like um, uh, polio. polio almost has, polio almost has. Uh, and so same thing with the monkeypox. It looks like the cat is out of the, out of the hat. However, that being said, since it's too late, I think we've adjusted. People say, well, they change your mind all the time. Okay, how come now yeah. they're not recommending masks in school? How come now they're not obligating uh, people to, uh, to uh, uh, report? Or how come now? And why? Well, because 95% of the population, conservatively, everyone that's hearing us on the radio right now, or almost everyone, has either had it or been in contact with it or have had a vaccination. So what is the purpose, if everybody has had it, to keep using masks? So that was adjusted. Now, if you have asthma, yeah. if you have cancer, if you're eight years old, if you have super duper high risk, for God's sake, use the, use the mask. Last week, even though I stayed at home, when someone came to the door, I would wear a mask. That's common courtesy and respect. But recommendations change based on the current scenario, not because we make it up as we go, but because we respond to what is happening. So will it probably be an annual issue? Absolutely. Just like the flu and just like other respiratory viruses. There's a pneumonia vaccination. There's a flu vaccination. There's a monkeypox vaccination. Will it be every six months? Will it be every year? That depends on the mutations that are coming in the future. For right now, we do know that about every six months, immunity is significantly compromised in those people that are high risk. If you are an NFL player, if you're a linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys, chances are you're going to do pretty well. But that doesn't mean that the coach or the trainer who's 70 years old is going to do as well if you infect them. So yeah, it's a little bit complicated right. in the way you respond to that. And we, there needs to be more um, efforts put towards getting rid of those preliminary conditions, those underlying conditions that yes. exacerbate all the symptoms and stuff like that. Thanks a lot, Dr. Ivan. Thank Melendez, you, Doc. Hidalgo County Health Authority joining us on Newstalk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on Newstalk 710 KURV and KURV.com. News Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. We mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news on News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Joining us now on your 956 Drive Home, a spokesperson for the National Border Patrol Council, part of our um, local Border Patrol Union, is Chris Cabrera to kind of remind us of what's at, at stake here at the border. As we read earlier today, a story of the grim milestone that we're uh, approaching of about 750 uh, illegal immigrants that have died crossing the border in this fiscal year. So uh, I, I always get anxiety texting or, or calling you, Chris, and this is no offense to you, but it's like I, I know it's it's like the same or worse every time we, we talk about this. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate that... Um they haven't put a stop to it yet. I, I, I don't know if the 
administration is ever going to uh, have enough deaths on the southwestern border to uh, actually put a stop to this. So, so let's get a, a reminder or a refresher course of some of the conditions that the illegal immigrants have where they're coming from, the conditions, the environment that they that they have to endure in order to make it this far to the border. Yeah, you know, just um, you know, just their trip to the United States is is a pretty rough journey, depending on where they're coming from, whether it be from uh, um, another continent, whether it's Asia, whether it's um, Europe, or you know, even South America. They make their way up. Um, a lot of times, it's walking, combination of walking, hopping trains, and and taking buses and then dealing with the uh, the cartel on the Mexican side in order to get across, sitting in stash houses over there. Uh, sometimes bad things happen to the, the women and children. I mean, you guys can only imagine what goes on there. And then once they get over here, not to mention the heat, um, the snakes, uh, you name it, all, all kinds of bad things can happen. And that's not including the, the diseases and the, 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 mal- mm. the, the, the malnutrition that, that they go through uh, through that journey. Do you have any recent numbers for us, Chris, of uh, total number of uh, attempted migrants coming across through our section here? You know, I don't have the numbers. I know where, you know, Del Rio is, uh, the Eagle Pass area is a little bit higher than we are, um, but not by much. The, the difference is, is we have more of an infrastructure set up here than they have out there. So uh, with them getting more, it's, it's, it's probably five, ten times worse for them over there because they don't have the facilities that we have here. We're joined by Chris Cabrera, a spokesperson for the National Border Patrol Council and one in our local sector here, the, the VP. Uh, Davis Rankin, your question? Chris, this is Davis Rankin. As he says, the uh, this area, this part of the border used to be the busiest, I think the busiest in the U.S. Why has Del Rio surpassed us? You know, from, from what I've been told from people that we catch out there in Del Rio, a lot of folks are going that route because they don't like to uh, deal with... Um, some of the, uh, the the cartel activity that they see on our side, uh, closer to our area. Um, you know, the uh, Reynosa area with all the cartel with the Gulf and the Zetas, and a lot of them would just further just as much take a, go a little farther west, walk a little farther, than have to deal with some of the things they deal with from these, uh, these people down here. Are they dealing with the cartel of any sort up there on the Mexican side? Yeah, but I, I guess it's... Uh, I don't know if they're gentler, um, but I think the problem here, what we deal with in our area is is there's a lot of infighting and fighting between the cartels and they kind of get caught in the middle. Um, Uh, There's a lot of uh, um, robbery. A lot of, uh, they they rob these folks when they come across. They rob them on the Mexican side. They they rob them before they cross. Sometimes they rob them after they cross and then they (laughs) they themselves jump in the river and go back. Is not to one other question over in that area. The, uh, the, the, the river is actually crossable on foot as opposed yeah. to McAllen area where you have to take a, a some type of flotation across. Are all, are we talking exclusively or about asylum seekers? This, this whole, our, all of our conversations are about asylum seekers rather, rather than people getting caught coming over for work. I'm assuming. Well, you know, you have you have both, you know, the, the cartels, they, they categorize these folks into uh, the asylum seekers and the people that are, are trying to get away and the people that are trying to get away and pay a little bit more money. Um, so they're going to send those asylum seekers walking up, knowing it's going to occupy us and then run the guys that are trying to get away and then run the other ones that 
paid a little more to get away. And then at the same time, the drugs are coming across. So they'll, they'll run them in, in little tiers so that, um, what they want to get away has the best chance of getting away. We're joined by Chris Cabrera with the National Border Patrol Council and our local chapter here in the Rio Grande Valley, our guest on your 956 Drive Home. We're talking about the border, big old border update. One of the larger stories that we've been hearing a lot of from both sides is the busing situation with uh, Greg Abbott. So uh, through your experience and through the grapevine and, and just what are the experiences so far? Like how, how has the process been, uh, has it been going smoothly? Um, for us, it's going smooth. You know, we, we, we send these people, um, we do our part. They, they leave our custody and, uh, the state of Texas will come in and ask them if they want to go to one of these cities. If they say yes, they, they, uh, pack them up and put them on a bus and, and ship them out there, which I think is a great idea. Um, our communities down here are very small. Um, I mean, if you look at it, McAllen's probably the biggest one and by no means is it anywhere near a Chicago or a New York or a DC so it's a lot harder for us to absorb this cost as a community as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, a community with millions upon millions of people. You wouldn't happen to have caught any wind of that NYC delegation that stopped by an Eagle Pass? <laughs> no, I didn't catch them. I'm pretty sure they didn't get too warm of a reception. Um, but, you know, those guys got enough of their problems up there. They need to stick to what they know and let us deal with the border situation. And if they want to provide sanctuary there, they're more than, we'll be more than willing to send them what we have and, um, you know, take some of the strain off of our communities down here. Um, and then if those folks are headed that way anyway, everybody, everybody benefits, you know, if they're, if they're headed that way anyway, they get a free ticket, they get to go to where they're going and um, the city of New York or Chicago or DC can, can help them out. Yeah. And that's been, there's been a lot of interesting claims made by people in Washington, D.C. and in New York City and in Chicago about, well, you know, the migrants don't really want to come this way. Uh, they're, they're being coerced or they're being tricked or, or, or what have you. And is that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, you know, from uh, as far as I know, no. I mean, I, we catch a lot of people and you ask them where they're going and, and they'll tell you we're going to New York. We're going to Atlanta. I mean, they, they already know where they're going. They're not going to jump on a on a bus to New York if they're heading to California. Um, you know, they're they might be poor, but they're not stupid. You know, and I think that, that that's what these uh, these some of these places are trying to make them seem like these these folks are just deaf, dumb, and illiterate. And and you know, they know where they're going, and they're they're not dumb. If they want to go to New York, they go to New York, whether we pay you for it or not. That's very true. I hadn't even thought about that. I'm I'm I'm, I'm a little slow on this part. It's not like there's a language barrier, right? I mean, everybody speaks Spanish. They know, you, you know how to communicate with a lot of these guys. Well, and, and on top of that, if they don't speak Spanish, if say they're from uh, Bangladesh or, or Nepal or, or wherever, mm -hmm. um, Nigeria, we'll, we'll, we have language line services. We get an interpreter on the phone and everything is explained to them in, in their language and in, in language that they understand best in their native tongue. And then we go from there. And but everything is done so everybody understands everything that's being put in front of them. Davis Rankin, your question for Chris Cabrera of the Border Patrol Council. Well, well I was wondering. He, Chris said at the beginning, the you know, how many how many people before the administration decides it's time to do something about it. And um, well, that was a great question. But I've, I've always argued that most Americans don't know what's going on here. There's a new NPR poll uh, from late August that shows more than half Americans say there's a, quote, invasion at the southern border. 
part of a broader decline, part of a broader decline in support for immigrants overall. Um, given that, uh, given that, I, I guess my question is, what do you think? Do you have any indication what the Biden administration is thinking? I, I have to think that their policy is in the control of a fairly small number of people and that the president's really not, not, not that he's out to lunch, but he's, that, you know, he's, he's, he's giving that to somebody else. Yeah. And, and I agree with that. You know, I, I think that the problem is, is, is they're not really putting too much thought into it at all. Um, they have a couple people that, that they count on to tell them um, what's going on down here. And obviously those people have failed at it. Um, and they need to either one, get their eyes on it uh, themselves or two, get somebody, somebody new in here to, to put a fresh set of eyes on it and, and determine what the problem is. Uh, the, the biggest disservice to these migrants is it's a, uh, it's a political issue now. So their needs are, mm -hmm. are, are nowhere near the front and center of what needs to be done. It, it becomes a political issue, a red versus blue issue, and they're just in the backdrop and, and they get, you know, whatever comes out of it. Tenfold. And they're human beings and, and nobody, whether you're for or against the immigration system, how it is now, nobody should be just, you know, their life should just be in limbo like that. One other question, it just occurred to me, they show up here, they get taken into custody, but what happens when they're starved and parched? And I, I mean, like they haven't eaten in a while or they got kids who are super hungry. What, what are y'all equipped to do? Well, you know, as far as the, the, the food is concerned, I mean, it, one, if they need medical attention, we get a medical attention uh, as far as if they're in, in dire need of having a heat stroke or something like that. Um, if you they need something minor, right? like maybe some fluids, you know, we, yeah. we can help them out there. Our EMTs in the field can, can hook them up with an IV until we get the ambulance out there. We have food for them. We have uh, uh, water for them. We have fans. We have areas where they can cool down. I mean, we, we have it all out there. We'll do the best we can with what we have. Unfortunately, we don't have enough of what's needed because more and more people are coming through because they know that the, sure. the, the door's wide open. So we do the best of what we have, and I think we're pretty successful at it. Unfortunately, it's coming at the um, where we're having to uh, not patrol our areas the way we should for people that are trying to avoid detection and, and for the drugs that are coming into the country. Um, it's, and you know, j just like with DPS, DPS is helping out down here, but they're not in their home community because they're having to flex in yeah. down here. All right, Chris. Well, thank you for the, the update. We appreciate you stopping by and giving us the report. That's Chris Cabrera with the National Border Patrol Council and part of, and a VP of the local chapter down here. Our guest thank on News Talk 710 KURV, your 956 Drive Home. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Start your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day. And special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, good morning, guys. Well, let's now enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Meanwhile, across the great state of Texas, there was a new survey online where they polled 1,291 teachers 
This is a survey from the Charles Butt Foundation to kind of figure out where teachers stand right now as far as their job. Joining us on 710KURV to talk about this is Monty Exter from the Association of Texas Professional Educators joining us now to, I guess, make heads or tails out of what's going on. Now, the pandemic and politics, the two Ps, are kind of what's driving a wedge between teachers and what it is that they love to do. So let's go over some of the numbers. There was a 77... 77% sorry, seventy-seven percent of those surveyed, that's a tongue twister, seriously considered leaving the profession in 2022. And 93% of those surveyed have taken steps to preparing resumes or just finding some way to get out of Dodge within the last year. So what have you been hearing, Monty? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you said part of it earlier on when it's, you know, politics, it's the pandemic. Um, and if you want to add another P to that, it's pay, um, and the fourth P pressure. So, uh, you know, teachers are sort of feeling it from all sides right now, in addition to not being well compensated, um, for the amounts of pressure that they're under. Uh, and so it only makes sense that uh, a large number of them are considering at least whether or not, um, the value proposition that they're currently in is one that they want to stay in. Um, thankfully, though, lots and lots of teachers uh, are considering and probably seriously considering whether or not to stay in the teaching profession. Um, the actual attrition numbers haven't um, increased nearly as much as the number of people considering whether or not they want to stay in the profession has increased. Have we heard anything from Mike Morath and that Texas teacher task force that Abbott made him put together a while back? So the task force has been meeting. They haven't released their full recommendations yet. Um, you know, really what we've heard primarily out of the agency is to some extent agreement, right, that there's a workload issue, that there's a pay issue, but not any solid plans on how to actually fix those things. Um, and uh, to a large degree, they've also been trying to push this new certification regime um, on teachers in the middle, um, on new teachers, I guess, not existing teachers, in the middle of all of this, um, one which doesn't necessarily offer a lot of benefits in terms of increased quality um, that could have an impact on constricting the incoming workforce flow, which in a time when we have people who are seriously considering leaving the profession, um, constricting the number of people coming into the profession is probably the last thing we want to do. Joining us on 710KURV is Monty Exter of the Association of Texas Professional Educators. We're talking about why uh, teachers, according to a new survey, kind of want to distance themselves or find find a new field to, to work in. I, I talked to some of my first and second year teacher buddies, and they were talking about resources and curriculum and stuff that the tools that they're given inside the classroom. Teachers pay teachers came up a lot. What, what can you tell us about that? Teachers what? Sorry. Yeah. So there, the last I saw it, and this is a few years back, so with inflation, it's probably gone up. Um, you know, depending on where you are in the state, it was between like 500 and a thousand dollars 
average per teacher that they were spending on supplies for their classrooms, for their kids, their students essentially, out of their own pockets on an annual basis. Um, you know, we're talking about folks who statewide average, their take-home pay um, is in the low 30s. And they're spending a full thousand dollars of that thirty thousand dollars that they live in all year long on their students' supplies. That little list of things that they ask the parents to bring in at the beginning of the year—that's what you're referring to, right? Some of that, uh, and then there's some other. You know, sometimes it is it is those things. Sometimes it's also if they want to, you know, print stuff off. Sometimes they have to buy their, their own paper to do that. If they want to, you know, have the things that, you know, you always, you can remember when you were in school and how uh, a teacher's classroom doesn't just look like a regular room that you walk in with blank walls or not much, you know, there's learning opportunities literally glued to every inch of a classroom wall. Um, you know, some of those types of things are some of the things that they're paying for. But then, yes, uh, you know, they're also paying for their kids to have pens, pencils, little kids' crayons, you know, paper for the kids, Kleenex, glue sticks, you know, all of it. Um, you know, there are plenty of schools where the parents are bringing those supplies in, but there are plenty of other schools where a supply list may go out, but nothing is coming in. And the state is not paying districts to be able to you know, provide those supplies. Districts are not necessarily providing those supplies because they're oftentimes cash-strapped. And so the teachers are just providing them out of their own pocket. I'm, I'm hogging the guest, Davis. I'm sorry. Uh, That's your question, fine. Your question for Monty Exter with the Association of Texas Professional Educators. Go ahead. Well, two, two surveys uh, have reported about the same thing, a lot of un unhappiness, unease with Texas teachers. And I'm, I'm figuring 75% of Texas teachers are not going to leave and go do something else. But, 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 but I don't know what you all think is, is reasonable to expect. But what um, is just more pay the solution to their problems? I mean, if they pay enough, you can put up with a lot of stuff. But I don't know... You know, I don't know how much the legislature thinks it can afford. I don't know whether there's a real difference between Republicans and Democrats in the way they look at this. Republicans hold the levers of power right now in the legislature. What do you all think? So pay is certainly a, a part of it. Um, and, and not just salary, but overall compensation. Um, so, for example, if you look at employee health care costs, um, and we'll just we'll keep the numbers as simple as possible. We'll just look at individual, just premiums for yourself, not family premiums. If you are paying the average here in Texas for an educator on their health care premiums is $440 a month. The average for the health care premium next door in Louisiana, $150 a month. The average for the health care premium up north in Oklahoma is 70 some odd dollars a month. Why is it and different? So, exactly. Why? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> well, you know, no, we got you're a little bit of an answer today at a hearing. Um, you know, when the explanation was basically given, well, back in 2000, when we put our policy in place about health care, um, you know, lawmakers chose to 
not tie those premiums to any sort of inflationary metric because they wanted to make sure that they kept state costs down. In doing so, they necessarily did not keep employee costs down, and they haven't made a change. They have chosen to not make a change in the amount of money that they spend on that particular part of compensation since 2000. Uh, Healthcare inflation is sometimes double what regular inflation is. So obviously those costs have gone up and all of that inflation Mm -hmm. has been borne by teachers. None of it, none of that additional cost has been borne by the state. Monty, when it comes to the the topic of the pandemic, because that was one of the uh, uh, prominent reasons why teachers were kind of upset going into this year, what have they been describing? So I think that, you know, the stress that teachers feel with regard to the pandemic, it certainly, it has shifted. You know, when we were in the throes of first trying to deal with the pandemic, the stress was about um, differences between state policymakers and district policymakers on the policies that they were making. And teachers getting caught in the crossfire Um, with parents not knowing what was going on, with teachers not knowing what was going on because they were getting cross-communication. That's largely resolved itself. Um, You know, you still see some political advertising about that, but the truth is everybody's back in school. And, you know, those policies are resolved. And so really now what you're dealing with is more about trying to Um, overcome and resolve the learning gaps um, that were caused during the pandemic, particularly in math and science. Um, And those learning gaps are significant. But the truth is teachers are more than capable, more than willing to do the work to overcome those learning gaps. It's that they are constantly getting... how to say this nicely, Um, (laughs) they are constantly getting negative feedback um, from relatively small groups of folks and largely driven by political processes um, that is making their job harder, that's making it harder for them to get in there and help those kids get back to where they need to be in terms of pre-pandemic learning levels. And as we've already said, they're really not getting paid more to do all this extra work, um, whether that's, you know, putting up with the negativity or trying to advance kids much faster than they otherwise would have to catch them up. Ouch. <laughs> that's all I can say. Like, wow, that was a mouthful. And I know, I know there's, you're, you're carefully crafting the way this is all said, because I can only imagine what they're seeing on their end. Yeah. I can only imagine what they're saying in meetings at ATP. That was the really nice version of me saying all of that. Wow. Wow. So uh, I guess how much catch-up is being placed, uh, thrust upon teachers right now? How big is the the, the learning gap and how how much are they being pressured into making up for it? I mean, they do understand that, you know, the learning gap is there for you know, them to make up. They get that they are the ones that are responsible for doing that and that they're the ones who can do it and have the tools to do it. Some of the pressure, I think, is about our state accountability system 
not really even recognizing that there was a learning gap, um, that, that COVID even happened. We didn't really make any changes in terms of what the expectations were um, for what students should know. Um, and for example, I'll go back again and, and specifically highlight math. Um, and I'll use my own personal example here. So I went to my, uh, my daughter is in going into seventh grade this year. We went to her curriculum night earlier this week. Um, her teacher, and God bless this woman, because she was going to retire and she decided to stick it out for another year. She is a 30-year teacher who has national board certification. Um, and she's like, you know, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm, we're only two weeks into class, but I can already see, like, all of your kiddos, they have these huge gaps. Math builds on itself. And so yeah. depending on where you are in the process, if you've essentially missed two years worth of math, you have these huge skill gaps that until you fill them, you really can't progress. Yeah. And so she will have to go in and fill all these gaps for all these kids this year just to get them to start to catch up. I, I, I couldn't even do math and I showed up every day to school, much less <laughs> missing two years of it. And then, yeah, so I can imagine. Thanks a lot, Monty, for the Thank report. You. Appreciate it. That's Monty Extra from the Association of Texas Professional Educators joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands, your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV.